0: We're working our way through the book of Romans, and in this letter, Paul lays out foundational Christian truths, basic truths, truths where to build on. The first 11 chapters lay the foundation of faith. These chapters tell us what to believe. And then, beginning in chapter 12, where we are, Paul begins to build on the foundation and these chapters tell us how to behave. And this is Paul's pattern in his writings. He does. First, he tells us what to believe. That's foundational. And then, based on what what we believe, he'll tell us how to behave. The goal of the Christian life is pretty straightforward. For faith to be expressed through love. Paul, again, begins with faith in this passage to the substructure, that's which is underneath, and he moves toward love, the superstructure. Look what it says. And we'll just read the first sentence. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And here, Paul identifies what it is we're supposed to root our faith in. He kind of sums up what has come before this point and what he wants us to take from chapters 1 through 11 as the basis upon which we are to build an ability to do what God wants us to do, and what he wants us to focus on, to be aware of, are God's mercies. The basis of Christian behavior is belief in the mercies of God, to the extent that our faith is rooted in an understanding of those mercies, we're going to be able to be and live the kind of lives that God wants us to live. Um, Faith is rooted in the mercies of God. Mercies are compassions. Compassions mean concerns for the troubles of another person. When somebody is dealing with some thing, a misfortune or death, compassions are a sense that you care about what's happening to them. So you hear about somebody that's suffering and it matters to you. It it strikes you. You can't just go on as if nothing happens. That's what compassions are. So the point Paul is making, we got a couple slides. Go ahead, Abby, hit the first one. Um, we have indicated that we are connected to God. And if we're connected to God, we're connected to good because God is good. We can't separate those. And therefore, if we are connected to God, we're connected to good. You, God, good. Go ahead. And what we have, the thing that connects us to God is, go ahead, hit that next one, mercy. It's God's mercy that connects us to him, as we understand that, we start to feel more secure in our connection to him and in our connection to good. Now that works because there's a lot in our life that doesn't feel good, that doesn't look good. And as we look at our circumstances, at our situation, there's things that we wouldn't call good. It's interesting that um, the Bible refers us to us as sheep. Sheep aren't really intelligent. They don't know good from bad. Oftentimes, they, if given a choice between brown and green forage, they just don't make really good decisions. So, relative to being a sheep, the uh, a question a sheep should ask itself is not, "Am I on a good road or a bad road?" Because sheep really don't know the difference between the two. The Bible refers to us as sheep. You know what a good sheep question is? Not, am I on a good road or a bad road? But, do I have a good shepherd? See, if if you have a good shepherd, it's his job to get you to a good place. So, if you have a good shepherd, you don't need to really be preoccupied with, am I on a good or a bad road? And that really applies, doesn't it? As you look at your life, there's some things in your life that you wouldn't call good. Things in my life that I don't think are good, that don't feel good. They're difficult. Relational concerns, social concerns, physical concerns. The, the good news is that even in the midst of things that don't feel good, if we have a good shepherd, we're going to land in a good place. Good in an eternal perspective. Um, there's a couple of things about God's mercy, though. There's a light side and a dark side. Go ahead, Abby. The, the light side of mercy is God chooses to be merciful to us. That's good news. Mercy is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is how God directs his favor towards people who don't feel that they deserve his favor. You might feel that I don't really... Uh, so if God's going to look for somebody to be merciful to, he's not going to look at me. I don't act or do the things he wants me to do and and think and feel. And actually, that kind of attitude, when you don't think you deserve it, is exactly who God directs his mercy towards. So the good news is God directs his mercy to us. Bad news. God chooses to be merciful to them. And the individuals that we don't think should deserve his mercy. And that's what we're going to find in this passage. Look what it says. He says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To present is to place something at the disposal of someone. So if I give you something, and I understand that you're going to take this thing and you're going to use it for your purposes, that's what it means to present. To present is the word used to offer a sacrifice to God. And it talks about presenting your bodies. The person, animal, or thing, this is the real thing you need to know about presenting something to God. And it'll make sense in a sec. When you present something to God, it goes from being yours to being his. So if it's an animal, if it's a sacrifice, all the sacrifices that you hear about in the Old Testament, the thing that we're told is that when you give that thing over to the priest, so like an animal, if you did an animal sacrifice in those days, you'd give the animal while it was living and At the point you gave it to the priest who was acting on God's behalf, it was no longer your property. You couldn't get it back. That's what it means to present. It's for what you give to become God's. That's the sense of it. Uh, The sacrifice passed from the offerer's possession into God's possession when it was offered. And when something becomes God's, then the word that you describe The word that characterizes it is the word holy. Holy is, in the case of presenting something to God, something that has been set apart for his use. It's a way you might think of it is being desecularized. Desecularized at the point where it's secular, it's given to God, it's his. It's no longer secular, it's sacred. It's no longer profane, it's holy, because now it's in God's hands. And what Paul talks about is presenting bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God. What does he mean by that? I think he has a particular application, and it's this. We've been hearing Paul talk about individuals being predestined and foreknown, and called, and justified, and glorified. And we've talked about how those words, these concepts, get attached to people in particular by some commentators who say, well, God selects you, you, but not you. And and what we've seen is not thinking individually here. He's thinking of people groups, that God chooses people groups And sometimes divides people groups in order to accomplish his purposes. What he said to Abraham, through you and your children, every nation on the world will be blessed. And, And then when it came time for the children of Abraham to respond to Jesus Christ, God chose a minority to respond and the majority, what we saw last week, he hardened. It's not that he just let them believe what they wanted to believe. He purposefully hardened most of Israel at the time. Opened the eyes of a minority. Now think about what it would have meant for those individuals, those Jews who became Christians. They became enemies, really of the government. They were forced out of Israel and had to move into the Roman Empire. When Paul talks about those who are to present their bodies and living in holy sacrifices, it has broad application to every Christian. It has specific application to Jewish Christians. Up till that time, what it says that the covenant that is in operation is served by the priest. So the Old Covenant is served by Old Covenant priests. That's what a priest does in Judaism. He understands and applies the covenant that is in place and lets people know what it means. So if I, if we were in the Old Covenant and I were an Old Covenant priest, what I would do is I would help you understand what the old covenant means for what you do on Saturday or Sunday or how you should educate your kids or what you should do. So you would come to me and I would tell you what it means. Jesus died and inaugurated a new covenant. When there's a change in covenant, there has to be a change in priesthood. It has to be, because the covenant and the priesthood go together. So now, old covenant priests no longer work. New covenant priests, who are they? Who are the new covenant priests? In the first century, certainly they are Paul and the apostles. And I believe the Jewish Christians, whom God chose and dispatched to go into the Gentile world, in order to lay a foundation so that 2,000 years later, we Gentiles could understand the new covenant. If they had not done what they had done, they, we wouldn't be in this position. In that sense, I think Paul was talking to those Jewish Christians, present your bodies as sacrifices. You are not your own. Give yourself to God, become His priests with the specific task of reflecting God to individuals who don't know him. Um, I think that's what Paul is intending here um, It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Look what it says i think it's I wrote it in your worship folder isaiah sixty six the last chapter of Isaiah. This is what he says. I will set a sign among them. I believe the sign that Isaiah talks about is the sign of the cross. And this is what he said. We'll send survivors from them to the nation. Survivors there are those Jews who respond and understand what the sign means. They are those who looked at the cross, heard about Jesus and said... I believe he's the Messiah and I believe he's the one God prophesied would come. So they are the ones. And so what it says, I will send survivors from them to the nations, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. I believe that's what Jewish Christians did. So God chose some of them, dispatched them, they went into the Roman Empire, they become new covenant priests, and because they did what they did, because God put this plan together, we, 2,000 years later, have a record of writings, most of which are Jewish, that let us know about him. And if these things hadn't been written down, we would not be in a position to know. So it's directing this towards Jewish Christian. They have more to lose at this point. Again, when we think about what it meant for them, um, Jewish Christians are really vulnerable. Uh, just a couple of things. Paul ran into all kinds of problems when he went to this city or to that city in his first missionary journey. I'm just going to read a couple of things. Acts 13, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And Paul was doing miracles, telling people about who Jesus was, and That was good, but here's what happened in city after city. But the Jews, again, these were Jews that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were livid about individuals believing that that was so. They incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. What ended up happening in city after city after city that Paul went to, he would... Do miracles and gain a following and people would be interested to hear. And then opponents who were primarily Jewish leaders, Pharisees, old covenant priests, stirred up the Gentiles. You really got to get after this guy. He's going to cause you a lot of problems. And then city after city after city, they were successful. And Paul ended up leaving a lot of those cities on a stretcher. Why would he do that? Because he had presented his body as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. What Paul had done, he says, I'm yours, God. Do with me what you will. And because he sacrificed himself, because God asked him to, we have these writings. We know about um, God's love for us. It says in Acts 14, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. And in city after city after city after city, knowing what was going to come his way, he continued to go to the cities to let them know, to let Gentiles know about Jesus and what it meant that he came. It would be especially important for Jewish Christians to be rooted in God's compassions and mercies. They will need to know that God cares about their struggles. It's it's more possible, isn't it, to endure struggles if you know that somebody cares. If you're in the hospital and you're suffering... Knowing that somebody cares, letters, cards, visits, they mean something. And it's the same thing for the first century and now. What Paul will say is that although God dispatches them and us to experience things that are difficult, but Paul would have us understand that God is not a distant, detached dictator who really is not kind of hit. He doesn't feel deeply about what we deal with. God is a God of compassions. He cares and uses the suffering of the first century and the suffering of his children to accomplish his purposes. Um, It will be important for them to understand this Um, He goes on to talk about what he wants them to do. So this is the basis. Um, And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. Paul provides a standard by which we are to measure ourselves, by which they were to measure themselves. And the standard is this. Recognize that when God looks at you, when God determines how you are doing. He doesn't see you in isolation. He didn't see them in isolation. He sees you as members of a body. You are gifted differently. We have different gifts. There's diversity. But the thing that is true, we are interdependent on one another. That's how God thinks. We think very privately about God looking at me. And there's a sense to which that will happen. But God thinks corporately. And in order to Understand how God assesses or evaluates he doesn 't evaluate you as an isolated person, but in terms of your relationships with others because it in god 's estimation corporate eclipses individual that 's the way god thinks he, he so um, because they are members of one body, this influences how they were to treat one another. And there's a really practical way that Paul applies this. Look what it says in Ephesians. And what he does, he bases a command on the truth that makes the command make sense. And so let, let me show you what I mean. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. So here's what he says. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. But with Paul, he always tells you what's true. And then he tells you what you should do in light of the fact that it's true. He never says, do this. What he always does, he says, this is true. Therefore, do this. He gives a context. So here's what he says. Don't lie to one another. Why shouldn't I lie to one another? Because you're members of one body. That's why you're not to lie to one another. It doesn't make sense, does it? For a body part to lie to another body part. You ever done this when you didn't see how there there was a drop coming? You ever done this? You said, of course you have. I'm not the only one. Please tell me I'm not the only one. So so you're, you're walking somewhere and you don't know that there's a step. And if your eye doesn't tell your body that there's a distance coming, your body cannot allow the muscles in your leg to prepare for the jolt. And if you ever stepped onto something without seeing that and then got the jolt, it doesn't make sense that the body lies to itself. That the eye, just to kind of be funny, you know, there's... There's a there's a big drop and the eye says, hey, watch this ear. You know, no, you got plenty of room. No, nah, you're not going to come to that step anytime soon. It doesn't make sense for the body to lie to itself. And that's why we're not to lie to one another because we're members of one body. Um, what is fitting is defined from a corporate perspective. He goes on in verse 6. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal and the one who acts of who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, gifts. Our spiritual abilities, God gives those who present themselves to him. Their capacities to serve him in unique ways. It gives us, this is not an exhaustive list, but if you look at the list, it seems to focus in two different directions. There are three faith gifts. And if you've got these gifts, it allows you to clarify what it is that God wants us to believe and think. It's faith gifts. A person with faith gifts, what they're good at is figuring out what God says and how it applies to a certain situation. And some of us have faith gifts. But then there are four love gifts. More love gifts than faith gifts here. And love gifts are gifts that he gives that allow individuals to care for others. So look at the list. Um, Three gifts are faith gifts. They deal with understanding God's revealed truth. Prophecy. Prophecy in this context is not just fortune-telling. It's speaking on behalf of God. And sometimes it's a declaration of this Sometimes it is God wants us to know this. But what somebody who prophesies does is speaks to individuals on God's behalf. Thus says the Lord. That's what a prophet does. It talks about uh, teaching as well. One who teaches. One who teaches kind of takes these declarations and makes it make sense. What does that mean? That's what a teacher does. And then it talks about exhortation. This is a person who takes these principles and applies them in a particular situation. It encourages and exhorts. So based on what God says, He would say, this is what it means for you, and this is what it means for you. So some have gifts of prophecy. Some have gifts of teaching. Some have gifts of exhortation. And that's faith gifts. But then it most of the gifts now, there are, have to be faith gifts, but because faith is the substructure, it's the foundation. You've got to have that. And when the foundation is in place, you can build onto the foundation. That's why right thinking, knowing what God is like, that's the foundation. If you want to work on something in order to be the person you, God wants you to be, that's what you do. You take it in, you think about it, you make room. Well, you do what you're doing this morning. There's other things you could be doing. You went to a place, there's other places you could go. So you went to a place, hopefully, to be able to hear things that would allow you to think and learn. And as that happens, your faith becomes more informed. That's a great choice. Then it goes on to talk about love gifts. They have to do with practical assistance of those who are in need of help or sympathy, serving. This word for serving, it's what happened when there were elders in Jerusalem and there were a lot of people in need. And so the elders, they were tied up with what they were doing, teaching and prayer. And so what they did, they picked people whose job it was to find those people who were needy in the community and channel resources to them. That's what serving meant. That's the word for deacon, a servant. Somebody who deals with practical needs. Not so much talking about what the Word says, but demonstrating what the Word says. That's what a servant was. Somebody who met practical needs. Talks about contribution. This is a person who either collected or they amassed material goods and channeled them to those who had needs. That's what they did. God gifts some people to do that. To accumulate resources... And to make these resources available. That's a spiritual gift that God gives. It uh, talks about leadership. Leadership in the context. It it doesn't seem to be church leadership as much as somebody responsible to take in the goods that have been given and administrate them to make sure they find their way out into the community. Those who serve will take these, but an administrator... It's like what happened with Peter. Peter functioned in this way. When um, there was poverty, there was a lot of poverty when the church was young in Israel before the persecutions hit and the Jews had to leave and mass to go out onto the Roman Empire, and so in the first, um, what ended up happening, individuals would and Peter was up front, and individuals would come, and they would put things at his feet. So there was a guy named Barnabas who um, sold his land. And at a meeting, that's what they would do. People would come forward at the meeting and they would donate the proceeds and put it at the feet of this person who functioned as the administrator. This person took in these things and made sure they found their ways into the homes so it could be used to take care of somebody had to be in charge of that. That seems to be what this is referring to. And mercy. Mercy are those who are really hands-on. They are the ones who are at bedsides. They are the ones who take some of these gifts and say, Hey, listen, I know you've been down, so I wanted you to have this. Is there anything I'd do for you? Is there any way I can help? No, you don't. No, I really would like to. And that's what individuals' gifts of mercy. So there was faith gifts and there were love gifts. Apparently, the church in Rome, they became pretty good at this. They must have listened to Paul. And what he said, the Jewish Christians must have listened because they stayed and they helped form a foundation. But the Roman church became known for being very giving. What we know is in the middle of the third century, uh, there was a plague that claimed 5,000 people a day in Rome. And the Roman government didn't know what to do. The doctors, what they said, the only thing they knew is if it's a plague, get out of there. So the Roman they they fled the area. Um, it, Rome was ill-prepared to deal with mass death. And here's where the church ended up gaining a lot of notoriety. Rather than fleeing disease and death, they went into these plague-ridden areas. And ministered to the sick, they helped the poor, the widowed, the crippled, the blind, the orphaned, and the aged. And you know what ended up happening, which is interesting, because they went into these environments, some of them developed immunities to the diseases. So rather than die from the diseases, they built an ability to live with it. And so... Uh, ended what ended up happening, the Emperor Julian at the time looked at the Romans fleeing and looked at the Christians and he tried to get the government to get people to do what the Christians were doing. How successful was he? can you can you mandate mercy horrible didn 't work at all they just because the reason the Christians did it. Is because they had presented their bodies as living sacrifices. They knew that this world was not going to be their home. It was not their best life now. Now is the part where you serve. And then on the far side of serving, on the far side of the grave, that's when they get their reward. That's the way they, that's the way they thought about things. Um, people of the Roman Empire were forced to admire the works and dedication of the Christians and what they would say about them. Look how they love one another. And again, love biblically is very practical. The love for one another, they weren't saying kumbaya and you know, you might like kumbaya, you might like that, that's fine, campfires, stuff like that, but that's not when they said, look how they love one another, that's not what they were saying. They're going into the city and they're bringing food and they're taking care of people. Look how they love one another. They roll up their sleeves. They go into dangerous things. They, they put themselves in jeopardy to care for physical needs. They don't just say, I'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah. They, they move into situations and roll up their sleeves. Um, biblical writers, Agree. so we talk about faith expressing itself in love. Biblical writers agree concerning the relationship between faith and love. And that's one thing you see. Not only Paul, but John and James and Peter, they all say the same thing. Let's look at a couple of verses as we close. Um, look what it says in 1 John 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us John says that fear and love are like oil and water one displaces the other if fear is high especially as it relates to God if fear of God's punishment is high your ability to love will be low because fear and love displace one another. The fear of punishment, see it like a teeter-totter. If the fear of punishment is high, the capacity to put your body or to serve is low. If you're there and fear is high, your love is low, what what do you do? You ever try to not be afraid? You ever try that? I have nothing to be afraid of. That doesn't work very well, does it? It doesn't work well, trying to convince ourselves that there's nothing to be afraid of, because are there things to be afraid of? Yes, there are. People feel that it's unchristian to be afraid. Fear is a natural response to a perceived threat. Fear is a natural response to a perceived threat. We're going to be afraid when we're threatened by a disease. So what do we do? Well, what it says is, perfect love casts out fear. What is it that has the power to cause fear to decrease? A father's love casts out fear. Right? How many dads out there love perfectly? Come on, raise your hand. Come on, don't be shy. Come on. Okay, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Reagan? No, no, it's not true. It's not, no. um, what casts out fear? Love? What? Perfect love casts out fear. How about this? Say your fear is high, your fear of punishment, you're afraid of God. You know what I would say? Ask this about God. God, will you help me to understand your love for me? Here's what's going to happen. As your understanding of perfect love grows, what's going to happen? What's happening? What's decreasing? Fear of punishment. That's the way it works. Perfect love drives out fear. You might do that. God, reveal yourself to me. If you... Have a request to ask about. I can say that about every day. God reveal yourself to me. Because what I understand, the more I know about him and his perfect love, the better able I'm going to be able to, the better able I will be to deal with fear and the fear of punishment. If you know he loves you, you're not afraid of him. He really is a wonderful father. He's both a dad and a king. Our God, the one who is our father, is also a king. And so he doesn't just care about his 2.5 kids. You know what he cares about? And this is good. It's hard sometimes. He cares about them. And what he will do, he will kind of bring us in and have us serve other people. That's that's what our God does. Um, Someone who fears God's punishment, that's going to be tough to love. So you see the relationship between fear and love. Love cannot be driven by fear. We love because he first loved us. Be loved and you'll be more loving. Look what 2 Peter says. Kind of a long passage. I'm just going to read and make a few very brief points. But Peter traces the relationship between faith and love in more detail. I really like this verse. If you want a verse that Starts at the beginning, lets you know about what things should be added, and if you're not making progress, it lets you know what went wrong. This verse does all of those things. Let's read. Follow along with me. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Okay? All things. And then he tells us, how He's given these to us, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. As we get to know God, we find an ability in knowing Him to do the things that He wants us to do. That makes sense. Perfect love drives out fear. As we come to know His love, it enables us to serve Him. It goes on, by which He has granted to us His precious And very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption in the world because of sinful desire. So, what it says, if you want to be partakers of the divine nature, not imitators, but participants in the divine nature, to have God's energy at work within you, that's what it's talking about. If you want that, to participate in the divine nature, and if you want to escape the corruption in the world caused by desire, what do you do? What is it that you need to grab hold of? You know what it says here? And this is a great, a very, very practical. It talks about his very great and precious Promises, so that through them, what's for the them? What's for the them? The promises. Through them, you become partakers of the divine nature. Through them, you escape with the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If you want to do what God wants you to do, and if you want to be able to avoid what God doesn't want you to do, what is it that you're going to want to grab onto? What's that? Promises, promises, promises. Faith, when rooted in promises, allows us to become who God wants us to be. Look what it says. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. It's going to talk about faith is the foundation. Faith that is a strong foundation. I'll just ask one more time. Faith is rooted in? One more time, good. Faith is rooted in promises. That's where it's rooted. And if that faith is strong, rooted in promises, then you add to it the way the substructure becomes a basis upon which to build the superstructure. The superstructure is like the house. The substructure is like the basement. So the substructure of faith, that's the foundation, that is faith In the promises of God. Then the substructure. Look what it comes. What do you add on? It says for this, add to your faith, supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection and love. I want you to look at that list. Relative to what we need to live a Christian life. Anything missing here? Just take a peek at that. Take a peek at the list. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, brotherly affection, godliness, love. That's a decent list, isn't it? If you're going to get a package with a bunch of stuff that you need to be able to live the Christian life, this is a pretty good package, isn't it? So, that's what it says. Add, and then it's, it's gonna say, well, look what it says. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if these things are in your life and are increasing, you become fruitful. Faith will express itself in love. That's the way it works. Whoever lacks these qualities, don't read on. Whoever lacks these qualities, what's the problem? Don't, it's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. Godliness, brotherly affection, love, knowledge, self-control, virtue. If they're not what they, you'd like them to be. What's the problem? Look what it says. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Somebody who's, they're not fruitful. What's the problem? They're not trying hard enough? What happened to their faith? The promise of forgiveness. Somehow faith got pulled out of it like a foundation that shifts. When the foundation shifts, the building cannot survive. Faith is the deal. Faith in the promises. Faith in forgiveness. That's not a nice thing. That's a necessary thing. That's the thing. And when we drive our faith deep into those promises, then the building goes up. And if the building isn't going up, keep coming back. We'll continue to talk about promises and talk about commitments. Um, faith is rooted in what's expressed in three and four. When faith is rooted in God's promises, we can build on the foundation. When the qualities are lacking, the problem is with the foundation, with the substructure. And we'll continue to attend to that. Let's sing a song as we close. Brett, We pray for us. Father, thank you for being a good father and for being sympathetic and sovereign, for being great and good. Uh, thanks for what that means for us. Thanks for the dads here and, and how you guide and watch out for us. Continue to walk with us. Allow you to be, Allow us to be who you would have us to be. I pray that more and more for all of us, little by little, slowly, you, you don't change us quickly. Change as deep. Change this deep, is not fast. Would you allow our faith to be rooted in your promises, in a, an awareness of who you are. And so as that happens, that becomes a substructure from which a superstructure can develop that will allow us to love as you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.